title for the message this morning is uh, Sorrow and Sweetness. It's going to be an overview, an introduction to Romans chapter 9. And I should tell you right now, it's really Romans chapter 9 all the way through Romans 10 verse 4 because that's really the entire thought. That's the unit. As you know, the letters that were written by the apostles were not written with chapters and with verse numbers, they were not broken up, they were written in one long letter, usually from one side of the paper to the other. Paper and ink was expensive, parchment was expensive. There weren't even spaces between the words. That's how dense the writing was. So those who have translated and structured our English Bibles do this for our benefit to make it easier for us, but they sometimes also make it look like there's a separation where there shouldn't be. So I'm going to, over the next several weeks, look at Romans chapter 9, verse 1 through chapter 10, verse 4. Sorrow and sweetness. That is what really infuses every aspect of these verses that we're going to be studying. And I wish to begin this morning by by emphasizing something that may seem contradictory to what you have heard before or maybe what you have thought after reading this yourself, and it is this, that this particular chapter is not predominantly about the sovereignty of God in election. This chapter is predominantly about the sorrow of an evangelist who is proclaiming a gospel in the earnest hopes that all who hear would believe. If there is a note that ought to ring through this sermon and all five sermons to follow as we break down this section part by part, it would be the end of Romans chapter 10 verse 4 which reads, to everyone who believes. So if there's one echo that will be heard reverberating through all these messages, it is that. It is the to everyone who believes. There is no better way to blunt the sharp edge of callous treatment of the doctrine of election than by reminding you that the gospel is for everyone who believes. And that this is a gospel to the Jews and a gospel to the Gentiles. This is a gospel that goes forth every single time the word is preached. It's going out right now. It is being being proclaimed. It is being sent to be heard, to be believed, to be responded to. And, And that will be what we do throughout this series. It's one that I've been excited to start. Um, I've been anticipating this since Romans 1. Took up a little break after Romans 8 and thought because it's a new section, then we'll, we'll study this separately, only to find out that Romans 9 makes no sense except for understanding Romans 8. <laughs> so we're going to remind ourselves of how that ends before we go into this one. Look back, Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 37, know in all these things we are more than conquerors, 
through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is the love of God that compels Paul to preach. It is the love of God that Paul wishes to see manifest in the hearts and lives of those who come to faith. So, I hope it's the love of God you sense. And I hope it's the call for all to believe that you hear. Now, there are really five sections in Romans 9, and I'm going to explain them to you, and I will take you through one at a time, and then we're going to provide some application for each at the end. So, we're going to give an overview of the chapter, I'm going to give you a brief explanation of the verses, and then I'm going to apply this at the end. So, five main sections. Section number one is in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, and it is this, God's servant. Please follow along as I read. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. So this is Paul beginning his explanation. He is going to say some things that are very unusual, maybe, for some hearers. He's going to say some things that are, that are hard to understand, some things that are new, some things that seem maybe a little bit illogical, I could say. He's going to say how sorrowful he is. He's also the same guy that says rejoice. So there's this challenge. But he says, whatever I'm going to tell you, I'm not lying. God has given me this truth. Namely, verse 2, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. That's his condition. Two words. Sorrow and anguish. Sorrow, a word used to describe circumstances that bring sorrow... And anguish, a word used to describe the internal turmoil of one who is in anguish. It is the external and the internal. It is like being burned by the rays of the sun and having a fever. You can be perfectly healthy and burned on the outside. Or you can be in a perfect climate but be burning up because of the inner fever Paul says, I've got both. I've got the outer sorrow and the inner anguish. So I am radiating sorrow and I am in sorrow all the time. For what? Verse 3, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul loves the Jews of whom he is one. So he describes them. They are Israelites term usually used to describe the covenant people of God, those ones who have been recipients of the promise. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. Now, we'll get into those in more detail next week, but suffice it to say, they have been privileged with, with, with a relationship with God that is so much different than every other nation. I love in particular the word worship. It's the, where we get the word liturgy from in English. They were told how to approach God. They were told how to worship him. That, that it wasn't left up to them to kind of bring whatever offerings they thought would be suitable. No, he, he told them how to come. He says, I'm, I'm going to share it with you. And it's going to be in spirit and in truth. And it's not about ritual. It's about the, the heart. Jesus 
did more to destroy formalized religion than any other teacher. He came into a situation where, where the religious professionals had turned everything into a series of actions that were external in nature and corrupt. And he obliterated it and called himself God because he is. He turned the whole thing on its head. In the New Covenant, he instituted the beginning of the end, the demise of the very system which Paul refers to here when he talks about this because it was all fulfilled ultimately in that one glorious evening where the bread and the wine were passed. And he says, I've come to fulfill it all. So Christ's message to his people is the same message that Paul brings. He echoes it. But he says to his people, the ones who were given all of this, who should have known that in verse 5, that it was to them that belonged the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Even the Messiah came through them. Go to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. If you were to look at the scope of redemptive history, the arc of biblical theology and understanding where this book fits in, you go all the way back to the beginning. There's the creation and then there was the fall and then there was the flood. There was the dividing up of nations at Babel and then come into Genesis 12 and there's Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. But even in those names, it's important because in some cases there was another son, sometimes born earlier. And yet, as we'll see in a moment, God chose one line, one son, one heritage to bring one Messiah. You get to Joseph and then the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham that his people would go into captivity in Egypt for 400 years begins to take place. And then out of Egypt comes Moses and Moses into the wilderness where God meets him on the mountain and gives him his law. 40 years of wandering and then into the conquest when all of those promises made to Abraham begin to unfold in their fulfillment. And yet the whole nation taken into captivity in two waves, some into Babylon, some into Assyria, only to be returned about 400 years before Christ after the prophets had warned that it was going to come and then warned that it was going to end. And then right towards the end, 400 years of silence and then the dawn of the last prophet of the Old Testament, John the Baptist, who declared that this one who came from Nazareth was the Messiah, the Christ. We're going to unpack all of that in more detail next week, but that's the scope. So this is God's servant. And what I learned in this section is that true love for others is both internal or causes both an internal and an external force of sorrow. Um, I would just share with you personally, a little sort of personal note. Um, I feel like one of the most, I, feel, I, think, I think being a pastor is, is one of the most um, challenging of, of, of roles because you feel so like emotionally bipolar a lot of the time. Like you're exceedingly joyful and exceedingly fascinated by everything that you get to do in terms of the, the study of God's word and watching the spirit work in the people. And then you're also oftentimes plagued with utter despondency over people, over their, their, their choices or over their actions or over their responses to things. And, and, and you're struggling constantly between this pull of one or the other. And, and, I, and, and it, that's why I think it's hard to live with pastors maybe. We're sort of a difficult group. 
But I trust that if, if, if anything, I can channel that from the Lord in, in, into maybe something that helps me understand a little bit of what Paul's going through here. Sorrowful, but always rejoicing. Like, that's a complex person to live with, isn't it? <laughs> How's your husband? Well, you know, he's sorrowful, but always rejoicing. You're like, wow, which, one, <laughs> which one's going to show up this morning? You know, um, I'm going to quote C.S. Lewis, and I'm going to quote a quote that's so overquoted, I should never quote it, but it's just so good, I have to quote it. It comes from his book, The Four Loves, and I think he grasped this understanding of love. He says this, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will not become unbreakable, impenetrable, or it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. I think that Paul, in, in this chapter of Romans 9, is explaining the fact that he is determined not to allow his love to become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable, but rather to flow freely and vulnerably to the people that he loves, to the glory of God. The second section is in verses 6 to 13. We looked at God's servant. Now I invite you to consider God's promise. Look at what he says. But it is not as though the word of God has failed why would you think it has failed? It might think it's failed because of the condition of the Jewish people. They've rejected the Messiah. But he says it hasn't failed for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But, quoting scripture, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told the older will serve the younger as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What does that mean? What it means is that true adoption is the way that God's children are made, not through birth. Children of God come through adoption, not through birth. He uses an example. He, he says, the reason that we know the promise hasn't failed is because the promise was made to individuals. And those individuals were the ones who were redeemed. Those are the ones who were adopted. 
Don't confuse the children of Abraham with merely being the Jewish people, he says. Because it is from the children of Abraham that God has selected certain ones through whom to carry a line leading to Messiah. And it is from the children of Abraham that God has selected some to believe, those would be the Jews, And it is into that group of select believers that even Gentiles, we will see, are grafted in. So the main focus here, if you you try to understand this, and I know it's maybe a lot to digest all at once, but just make a note. When we study this chapter, we are going to look at a very clear distinction between those who are part of the promise made to Abraham, fulfilled among the Jewish people in general, And those who are the recipients of the promised salvation that came to some. And then we're going to rejoice together in that God has made a way for even those who are not originally given the covenant to be grafted in. So the reason the promise hasn't failed is that God has never failed to redeem a remnant. God has never failed to save some. Now this leads to the next section, which is God's grace. And again, I remind you, this is just an overview. We'll go deeper into these things when we study them one by one, but this is God's grace, verses 14 through 18. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth so that he has mercy on whom he wills and hardens whomever he wills. We see here, That true compassion exists in God. We all need compassion. But we cannot earn compassion or provoke compassion. He says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will show grace to whom I will show grace. I will be compassionate to whom I will be compassionate. And the way that compassion is received is not by putting ourselves in a place where we are worthy of receiving the compassion. It's not a work we do. Nor is it something that provokes compassion. Let me illustrate it this way. There are people to whom we show compassion because we're made aware of their struggle. Somebody tells us what they're enduring, what they're going through. And we say now because of our knowledge of it, we will go and we will show compassion to them. Others are given compassion because of the pitiful nature of their circumstances. We see what they are enduring, and with our own eyes and in our own mind, we determine that we are going to give compassion. We are provoked to compassion. And what we need to understand here is that God, being infinitely knowledgeable, is aware of our desperate need. He is aware of our condition. He knows our weaknesses. And yet, what moves his hand is his sovereign will. What moves his hand is his own desire to be compassionate. Nobody obligates God to be compassionate. No one can force God to be compassionate. The love of God is not held in a charitable trust 
and there is a required amount of distribution of funds every year. The love of God is of infinite value and it is administered and given and shown in accordance with his will. That's a very important truth that we need to understand in this chapter. God's grace. The next thing we'll see is in verses 19 through 29, and that's God's faithfulness. Look down at that. God's faithfulness. You'll say then, why does he still find fault? Don't you love how Paul anticipates our questions? He saves us the trouble. He does the thinking for us. Maybe you don't read the scriptures and and think the right thoughts, or maybe you don't read the scriptures and ask the right questions, or or maybe you encounter something of of enormity in the word of God and you don't even know what you don't know and you're trying to frame up uh, a way of articulating your confusion. Paul does this for us, and Paul says, let me ask the question you should be asking right now. Paul makes a bold statement, and then he says, now if I were you, I would be wondering about this. If I were you, and if you were remembering everything else I taught you about God's character, then I would certainly be asking this question. And he does that for us in section by section. So notice what he did there in verse 19. You will say then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? That's a good logical question. If everything that was just said earlier is true, then how in the world can God find fault with anyone? Now these famous words, perhaps the most well-known of the entire section... I will read them because I memorized them in the King James Version and it always sort of slips in when I say it off the top of my head. Um, He says in verse 20, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use, the other for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order that he might make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not my beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sands of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. This is God's faithfulness, his true confidence, true confidence in a judge who remains loyal in the face of failure. If there's one thing that we're going to see when we get to this section, it is that God remains faithful even when we are faithless. He carries us along without depending upon us to do our part. Now he gives an illustration there from Hosea. And if you're not familiar with the book of Hosea, it's a fascinating prophecy. It's the beginning of the minor prophets, those 12 little prophecies at the end of the Old Testament, right before Joel. And Hosea was a prophet who was told to go and marry a woman who would later become a prostitute. And 
She was meant to exemplify the nation of Israel, a type of the nation of Israel, her rejection, her harlotry. And what Hosea is told to do is to continue to love this woman, Gomer, to continue to care for her, continue to provide for her, continue to be faithful to her, even though she goes out and has children with multiple other men, and they are given names like not mine. And it's meant to signify the fact that God has, in a sense, disowned the nation of Israel temporarily. And at the end of the story, after this woman has run off, after she has sold herself into prostitution, after maybe she's not good for that anymore and the person who owned her has put her up for sale, in the midst of that crowd gathered at the auction block, she stands there, naked and ashamed, used, abused, violated and useless, at least in the eyes of the world. And as the bidding starts, there's a voice that's familiar, and it's Hosea's. And Hosea bids for her. And Hosea buys her back. And the scripture says that he clothes her, and he speaks kindly to her. And he restores her. And that's meant to be a picture of what God will do, not only with the people whom he has chosen from the nation of Israel, but the people he has chosen from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. At the great wedding feast, when he one day restores and perfects us and makes us truly cleansed and perfect before him. You see, there's a grand investment that's being made here. And far, than, far, far from just the money that, that Hosea had to pay to get Gomer back, God had to pay with the life of his own son that a bride might be purchased for him. And, and so when we study Romans 9, we're studying it from the vantage point that God in his absolute faithfulness embraces the failure of those whom he loves knowing that it's going to cost him and he is willing to rescue and redeem and buy back. And, and I just want to say something very briefly to any of you who are here today who are, have not put your faith in Christ. I don't know every one of you. I don't know every condition. I'm even told in the Bible that, that there are people who look like Christians, but they're not. And so I don't know. And I, every week I stand here and I wonder, but every week I want to make the proclamation clear, regardless of what you've done or are doing. There's a loving Savior who, with arms open, will embrace and restore and redeem and recover you. He will clothe you with something far greater than a robe, with the very righteousness of Christ. And he will buy you back, not begrudgingly, but with great joy. That, that it brings him delight to rescue and buy back those who put their faith and trust in him. And so you say, what do I do? Do I clean myself up? No, the fact of the matter is you could never clean yourself up enough to make yourself attractive to him. <laughs> it's you and your wretchedness. It's you and your shame. It's you and your failures over and over again. It's you at the end of your rope. And, and that's where he finds you. And that's where he redeems you. What do you need to do? You believe. That's what he says. You believe. You believe that gospel and you receive that forgiveness and you are restored. Like that prodigal son clothed in the righteousness of Christ and celebrated over. 
He is faithful. Now the final section is God's righteousness. We've seen that God's servant is the first section, God's promise the next, God's grace the next, God's faithfulness, and now finally God's righteousness. In this we see true holiness on the basis of faith alone. Verse 30 and following. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. If I could change a word in the book of Romans, it would be the word righteousness. Because as you know from our previous studies, it's it's the word that means justification. Forensic, legal justification. It means you're no longer guilty. It's not anything that we can even parallel. We have some glimpses of it in our world, but nothing compared to what Christ has done. A couple weeks ago, I was driving home, and um, evidently uh, created a driving lane out of one that wasn't a driving lane. Um, And I realized that when the officer kindly informed me that that's what I had done. Now, so I pulled over and I did the obligatory search for whatever documentation should be with me at all times in my vehicle, and of course wasn't. And so in the ensuing conversation with myself and Officer Kelly as we were getting to know one another, because it's always helpful in situations like this, he kindly offered to overlook the moving violation in favor of the lesser violation of me not having the requisite documentation. To which I said, thank you. Because that involves no fine, it involves no points, and all it involves is me showing up at the courthouse in Vista with a little piece of paper that says, yes, I do in fact drive with insurance. Now what did he do? Officer Kelly, and if you ever were to listen to this, sir, thank you so much for what you did was kind enough to overlook my sin, but that didn't pay for it. Oh, it's true, I will never be held accountable for it. Um, I will not have to pay that fine. It will not be on my record, but it was still a violation. It still goes unforgiven, unpaid for. Do you see the difference? Now, when I go in and I show my little piece of paper and I do the deed, I pay for my other little sin, And then it's over. And neither of those represent our relationship to God. Number one, he cannot overlook the sin and merely grant a pardon and say, go be on your way, I'll 
nail you for something else, nor can he say the violation is small enough and simple enough that all you need to do is show up in my courtroom with the documentation and you'll be fine. Neither of those are possible. You see, neither of those can happen. Why? Because the sin that we commit is a sin that demands full payment if God is to remain just. Therefore, he cannot overlook it. It cannot be pardoned. It cannot be forgotten. Payment must be made, full payment, complete payment. Also, the sins that we have committed are so grievous and so eternal in nature that we could not pay for them ourselves, though we were to be in hell forever trying. No acts of righteousness, or as he says in this section of Romans, works of the law can justify, can pay the penalty in full. Therefore, he had to send his holy son that he might endure the eternal hells of all who would trust in him, thereby paying in full the penalty so that he does not treat us as one who has never sinned, but he treats us as one who has sinned and deserves hell, but a substitute has come and has paid that already in full. And then he says, by the way, that covers everything, everything, all the sin. So don't even try to do better on your own to earn my favor. <laughs> the penalty's been paid. It's like saying to me, you know what? We're gonna pay the penalty for you. You don't need to worry about that violation. And you don't even need to worry about showing up and proving you have insurance. In fact, don't even bother trying to be a better driver. What you have here is a righteousness, a justification given to you, meaning from that moment forward, your own good works are only manifestations of your love for Christ. They're only manifestations of your desire to obey him. They are always going to be tainted with some degree of sin. They're not going to improve your standing with him. He's not going to love you more because of them. Nor is he going to love you less when you don't produce them. Because anything produced in you is produced by his Holy Spirit. And therefore, when I look at the word righteous, I don't want to confuse you with the notion of external conformity and doing better deeds. I want you to see justification as something you couldn't earn anyway and that he did for you. If that's foreign to you this morning, let me invite you to rejoice in that truth. And receive that, knowing that his love for you is not traded on some open exchange and influenced by how well you do externally. There will be a change in you. You will bear fruit. But that fruit will be an evidence of what he has already done, not a condition for what he will do. Let me apply this if I can. Just five simple statements, okay? Let's go back, apply each of these. Number one, from the first section, I believe we're going to see that we learn to love people because we have been loved by God. We learn to love people because we've been loved by God. We, we begin to see ourselves in light of his love, his mercy, his grace. It makes you very large-hearted towards people. It makes you very long-suffering with people. It makes you large-hearted and broken-hearted at the same time. You will suffer. 
you will be rejected. You will be even taken advantage of, abused. Your kindness will be responded to with unkindness from time to time. And in the midst of that, you echo the very heartbeat of Christ who knew that much more and much worse than we ever could. Number two, regarding his promise, we learn to accept people because we've been accepted by God. We love them because we were loved by God and we accept people because we've been accepted by, by God. You know, he adopts those who are his. So look at it this way. You're adopted into a family. Do you look down on the next child adopted into the family as if that child wasn't worthy of adoption but you were? That's the idea. You're adopted into his family and therefore you look around at other people adopted into his family. And we, this gathering of believers here who are in his family, are all adopted into his family. Not one of us was more worthy of being adopted than the other. And so it makes you very careful not to judge, not to compare, and not to show malice towards one another. Number three, regarding his grace, uh, we learn to receive mercy as mercy and not as a foundation for pride. We learn to receive mercy as mercy and not a foundation for pride. <laughs> we don't say, well, God is merciful to me because I earned it. He is merciful to me because I'm better than that person. Mercy is mercy. Mercy by its very nature cannot be earned and therefore you can't be proud of it. You can't wear a ribbon saying God showed me mercy. Like I got the mercy award. All that shows is that you are even more desperately needy than anyone else. Mercy comes from him. It's not earned and it's not a foundation for us to take pride. Therefore, by the way, you can show it to others much more easily. As you so we learn to love people. We learn to accept people. We learn to receive mercy and give it. We also, number four, based on the faithfulness section, we learn to withhold judgment and trust God to do what he wills and what is right. We learn to withhold judgment and to trust God to do what he wills and what is right. And if there's one thing that we demonstrate to a watching world is our impression of God's justice. So there's this really interesting book that was written by a gentleman, I believe, theologian from Croatia, if I'm not mistaken. And, and, and in this, he, he makes an argument for why believers don't seek revenge. He says, we don't seek revenge because we actually believe in a just judge. We don't judge because we believe in a just judge. How could you, how could you continue in this world if you didn't believe that there was justice in the end. Now most of us haven't seen enough injustice or felt enough injustice to know what it is like to be so viscerally affected by it that we feel like we're going insane if we don't get back at the person who has harmed us. Perhaps some of you have had something close to that, but I, I suggest most of you have not. And that's why we so often become resentful and judgmental of people because we've never felt enough to where we've had to resign ourselves to the reality that in the end, God will judge and he will judge perfectly and he will do only what is good and only what is right. And we release it out of our hands. We haven't done that because we haven't felt 
haven't been hurt enough to where we say, I don't care what the consequences are. I'm going to track that person down and I'm going to kill them for what they did. I haven't felt that. But for those in Paul's audience who had, the notion of the faithfulness of God to judge in the end and to do what is right is transformative. And then finally, God's righteousness, that last section, we're going to learn to preach a simple gospel of Christ and him crucified in everything that we do. Just a simple proclamation of Christ and him crucified in, as our brother taught us last week, in all of its foolishness, in all of its simplicity, in all of its lack of sophistication. You know what it's like if you've done this. A couple of times on our trip, I was with an Uber driver and because of language barriers and other things, when I gave him the gospel, it was like the simplest kindergarten version of the gospel. And yet, that is the gospel. That's all that matters, is to get the very basic truth of Christ and him crucified and the fact that you can do nothing to earn your salvation and put your faith in him and believe. And, and if we can embrace that truth, it will transform us. We will see righteousness not as an external conformity. We won't judge other people because they're not as righteous as us. And we won't feel judged and and a failure because we don't live up to some standard of external righteousness. We will see that justification is the issue, and that comes from God. Because, as the passage ends, because Christ is the end of the law. Christ is the end of religion. He was the end of religion of the Pharisees, and he is the end of the religion of Western evangelicals. He is the end of anything that supplants a simple understanding of the gospel, the end of the law, and he is the source of justification or righteousness as described here. He is the only one who can justify and he does that, may I remind you, for anyone who believes. Amen? Amen. That is what we're going to study for the next five weeks. So now that you've heard the intro... You have to be here for the next five weeks. It's a requirement. I want you to hear this. It is awesome. And it will transform your mind and your heart, I believe, if you allow it. Let us pray and then we'll sing together. Father in heaven, thank you for this truth, for this sort of flyby that we've been able to do this morning of it. May we be so overwhelmed by your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness and your justification that we have the humility to deconstruct all of the religious fortresses that we've built up around ourselves, all of the bunkers in which we hide to protect ourselves from the vulnerability of loving as you loved, that we would be willing to go out, as it were, into the open, clothed in your righteousness and your armor, knowing of the temptations that will ensue, but confident that through it all, you will manifest your grace through us to others, whether it be our spouses, our children, our coworkers, people in this church, that there would be an unmistakable fragrance of grace 
that permeates everything that we do. An absolute lack of confidence in the flesh and an overwhelming sense of dependence upon the spirit to do your work and work mightily in us. We look forward to the day when all will be made right. We will enjoy your presence in the resurrection and the new earth forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.